0: This is the weekend edition
1: of The Core Report. Hello and welcome to The Core Report weekend edition. We've been talking about manufacturing, the focus on China plus one, investments coming into India in manufacturing and of course other areas as well. But when it comes to bringing investments into India in, for example, the context of manufacturing, think about supply chains, one issue that we don't usually talk about is tax. Tax is a complicated issue. When... You bring products or components from another country into this country, add value, send them out. There are taxation elements involved at various points. This leads to, obviously, complications at some point. It also leads to situations or questions about how tax is being enforced. And I'm not necessarily saying it in a negative way, but how it's being enforced and the understanding of it. And bringing all of this into your calculations as you set up a business, even if you're several layers below the final product, is an important contribution or a constitution of component of doing business in a country like India. So to discuss this in some detail, in some ways lay out the landscape in a way that most people can understand, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dinesh Kanabar, the founder of Druva Advisors, a tax and regulatory advisory firm headquartered right here in Mumbai. Druva is also one of the largest firms in its space in India and Dinesh Kanabar, of course is a veteran in the tax system having worked with many other firms in the past. Dinesh Kanabhar, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me go in. Right so let me start by asking you to lay out a general landscape. You know in our conversations before this I was giving you the example or an illustration of an iPhone. We are obviously trying to bring in more and more of the iPhone manufacturing ecosystem into India but it's also a fact that the final product may be assembled here but there are many things coming from all over the world. How does tax begin to play, and how does it work at the various points of entry and exit and assembly in a product like that? Then we'll go on to other examples and the larger challenges.
0: About six years ago, when Foxconn started the journey to come back and say that they had already been in Chennai, they had left, they had a strike, whatever else, they went back, and then they came back to say, we cannot afford to be only in China. Remember, they have 14 lakh workers in China. And they felt that they'd put all their eggs in one basket. So almost six years ago, they came down to India to say, how do we set up a manufacturing base in India? And lo and behold, the strange thing which happened is that it was costlier to manufacture in India than to simply assemble or even get the full item bought and imported into India. So with what you call as an inverted duty. And the inverted duty meant that if you imported components, you paid duty on those components, you assembled the components, paid again GST or all of that. If you are exporting, you did whatever IGST, etc. What you paid up was far more making the product costlier than simply importing the equipment. And we were called in by Niti Ayo, by Maiti, and spent quite a bit of time explaining to them. What we found was that the duty payable, overall duty payable, if you manufactured in India, was far more than if you imported the final product. We explain all of this to Niti Ayog, we explain all of this to Maiti. They understood the proposition and they made a number of changes. As a result of which, it has now become neutral to say that, yes, if you're manufacturing in India, you are no worse off. And then to grab this entire initiative of make in India, export from India, make in India for the world, for the region, whatever else, we introduced PLI schemes and all of it. Having said all of that, there are still a number of processes. There was this whole issue regarding Tesla which came in and there was a standoff. And the point really, and government seems to be relenting to come back and say that if there is somebody who's ultimately aiming to manufacture, a manufacture cannot happen on day one. You need to first allow SKD, a CKD product, assemble in India and then allow somebody to manufacture. So there are a number of issues out there where there are leakages and those leakages do not make manufacturing in India attractive. Good part is that the government
1: is aware of it, has now accepted the position
0: and has, in the case of
1: iPhones, sort of set it right. So if to go back to that example and you mentioned Foxconn, so can you illustrate that, for example, let's say what would have been a component uh, or uh, let's say chip that was being imported, let's say from Taiwan, into India. And I'm sure some other part was coming from maybe Vietnam or somewhere else. And what were the duties that were being applied at various stages and how was it affecting the final cost?
0: The way it was working originally is that, for example, the duty on iPhone, import duty, was 10%. But on chip, was on 15%. And you could not therefore subsume that 15% into 10%. That 5% was a loss. So there were various components within the manufacture of a product, whose duty was higher than the final product. Therefore, if you got all those products, put everything together and sent it out, because of the fact that the duty on components was higher than the duty on the final product, even if you re-exported it, you lost that particular amount. That is what was actually the nut of the issue.
1: Right. And there must be, in the context of supply chains, to stay with that for a moment, there must be similar other examples? Car manufacture
0: is again one such example. So, if for example, you are assembling a car in India and you are getting number of components, whether it is batteries, whether it is whatever else, engines, whatever, the components on them could be, duty could be higher than the duty on the final product, which is what made manufacturing in India not attractive.
1: But today to import a car, you're paying very high duty. You could be paying 100% for example, whereas components I'm assuming in any case are less.
0: Take a situation where you are going to make a car and export it out. So if you are manufacturing, you could subsume all of it. Now, when you are manufacturing and selling it out, are you able to get a set-off of all the duties that you paid on the components when you send it out or not? That's what becomes the issue.
1: So are you able to?
0: So now things have been set right and you are now able to. Six years ago, you were not. A process started it was a process of learning for the government. Fortunately, the government was proactive, understood what it was all about. And we were able to convince the government to make changes. And the changes were very wholesome and welcome. So at this point, there are no import there duties on... There are no The government has addressed this issue of inversion and has ensured that it does not matter whether you manufacture in India or you get components and sort of or import the product as a whole.
1: Right. As we look at our ambitions, let's say we want to bring in more investments into India, China plus one. So, iPhone is one illustration. We want to bring in much more. Let's say it could be semiconductors at the highest end to more toys, toy manufacture at the lowest end. What are the kind of taxation and tariff issues that we are grappling with right now?
0: I think more than tariff issues, what we are looking at is a price competition. So, when you are looking at a China where manufacturing is heavily subsidized. So, I'll again go back to the iPhone. You spoke only about the duty. But let's compare India and China. And you are aware, for example, that an iPhone manufactured in India costs higher than an imported iPhone. And why is that so? So the question is that when the Chinese government is able to bypass all the WTO barriers and come back and say that we'll provide to you electricity cheaper than what it costs us, we're going to provide finance to you at a very, very cheap rate, all of that, And it's a very peculiar system, Going I'll go into a bit of detail. So, let's say you've got a corporate tax in China of 30%. That is shared between the center and the state. So, the state gets 15%. You can actually negotiate with the state that the share of income tax comes back to you. If you are relocating from one place to another, they will give you a land free. They will give you power free. They will give you incentives to make your relocation cheaper so what you are finding is that because of the intervention of the state the ability to manufacture it's not a level playing field that's the point i'm trying to make that make a iphone in india and you make an iphone in china ordinarily you would say that it is my manufacturing cost and one should compare like with the like and compete in an open market that's not what is happening out here here the government is doling out so many subsidies in china which we are not doing in india which not be a right thing to do in India. But the fact of the matter is that that makes us less competitive vis-a-vis China.
1: But the interesting thing you're saying is that corporate or income tax is not a pure federal collection in China.
0: It is a federal collection. But then the center parts, just as in GST, we have collection by the center and then disbursement to the state. So similarly there, the income tax is collected by the center. It's a single levy. But it is shared with the state.
1: Immediately. Immediately. At a fixed percentage. Correct. So that's not the case in India. That's not the case yeah. in India.
0: But that doesn't matter. I, I'm giving you just an example. We don't need to delve only on that example. So in India, for example...
1: No, but you're saying the state could give up okay. its share. So it's like saying Maharashtra gives up its share of income tax and you know, fights with Gujarat or... yeah. So
0: it does not give up. It happens in a way that you will pay the full thing and the state will reimburse you what it is getting. Okay. So... In China, if you were in a particular province, you would pay the same federal income tax because that's the rate of tax. However, the share with the state gets, it will reimburse you. And it can reimburse you in 10 different ways.
1: Mm. So, but you're saying therefore it becomes that much more tough for... Absolutely.
0: We are not competing on a level playing field at all.
1: Right. So, in general now, talking about supply chains, what are the other kind of issues? So, I, I mean, I don't want to jump into transfer pricing right now, but it would be useful to understand... The role of transfer pricing today, we've had it now for many years. Are things becoming easier? And again, once seen in the context of supply chains, how are we coping with it? So two parts to it. One is a pure tax part. And I'll come to that later.
0: But again, I just go back to the point which I made earlier. It is the state intervention and the state's ability to say, I will give you power cheap. I will give you water cheap. Okay. Even if the manpower cost in India and China is comparable like to like, you just can't compete. And again, I can give this to you as an example. When Foxconn came here and we went around with Foxconn to meet several of the state government and the state governments would go back and say, we can give you the land cheaper. The question is, why cheaper? Why not free? I can't take the land with me. Ownership of land means nothing to me. You are giving me a land so that I can set up a factory and I can give employment to your people why should I pay for the land now to us in India that may appear to be outrageous that how can somebody ask for it why would I give it to free Okay. and when we went with the state governments to China to examine what they do a Chinese state government would come back and say we'll give you land free in fact if you are wanting to set up here we will reimburse you the entire cost of relocation from another state to my state Okay. and happy to reimburse all of you all of it to you. Now, that's a very, very different approach. So the approach which China is taking, which of course is a different system, can which they can do and which you may not be able to do in a democracy because it's purely market and state has limited role to play. But the way China is approaching it is to say, if our goal is to create
1: jobs, our goal is to grow our GDP, we'll do whatever it takes. Right. Okay. So let me come back to supply chains. As we you know, in 2023, go into 2024, how are things moving when it comes to international tax? So
0: I'll give a practical example. I'm dealing with one of the largest American companies, which is into some aspect of auto manufacturing. I won't go into specifics beyond that. And there were huge manufacturing plant in China. The largest manufacturing base is in China. And as they evaluated, they came back to say that they wanted to relocate to India. It was not China plus one, but actually physically relocating the existing plant into India. And thereafter, going into backward thing, EVs, whatever else, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, they wanted to do. A very, very welcome thing. And we started working with them. And as we start working with them, we find that there is a probably a level of bureaucracy which is frustrating them. Okay? So... At a policy level, I can tell you that our policies are absolutely top class. Nothing to complain. The question is, how are the policies getting implemented? Is there a red tipism? Is there a bureaucracy which sort of puts a barrier to the implementation of the policy in the way the government would like to have it implemented? And I think the answer seems to be yes, because... You got to negotiate with the state governments for land, you got to negotiate with somebody else for something else. And that process sometimes becomes very, very frustrating, sometimes full of rate-tapism. And I I am actually witnessing that there is a rethinking on the part of this American company to come back and say, are we approaching this right? We are very gung ho about coming to India, moving out of China. Maybe we need to rethink, maybe
1: India should be plus one rather than being the manufacturing waste. Hmm. So this is automotive, which is as physical as it gets. Do you see similar concerns on the services side as well? Or is that far more frictionless? Oh, services is far more frictionless.
0: Because the touch point with the government is de minimis. And that has been the biggest thing. The reason why we have seen the Infosys of the world, the TCSS of the world, Vipro's, HCL's, whoever else grow, has been that the government intervention has been de minimis. They, of course, got this advantage of being in Uh, SEZ, having a 10-year tax holiday, etc., etc. The only thing there was the point which you raised with me earlier, which was on transfer pricing. So uh, one of the things which is in India far too prevalent is captives. So everybody is using India as a back office. And while the word back, back office may not sound so much sexy, you know, what sort of a work are you doing? What I have seen in my experience is that people come to India for cost and stay here because of our capabilities. So people go on moving up the value chain such that at some stage you make the overseas operations almost redundant. And that's something to be extremely proud of. That's where we are. So you may come back and say, can I do basic accounting? From basic accounting, you can say I can come and do an IFRS reconciliation. From there, you can come back and say, can I maintain all my books of accounts here? And then finally, you'd come back and say, I can prepare financial statements. I don't need a CFO sitting out of USA. And then now the big four, for example, have their audit divisions in India or rather audits happening for global accounts from India. So it's actually moving quite a bit and something to be...
1: Everything is so digital. It's not like they have to go and sit in the offices and look at books and ledgers and so on. Absolutely.
0: So the only challenge which has happened there is transfer pricing. And two limbs to it. There was earlier a controversy and thank God it died down. As to say that if there is a core operation happening in India, then in that core operation, I will not accept transfer pricing. I will regard actually a profit split. So part of the profit should come to India. That is how the tax office started. Fortunately, that didn't go too far. But even today, we have this issue as to what should be the margin. Fortunately, the global MNC is accepted. Uh, everybody actually began with cost plus 5%, 7%, 10%. And now the general norm is around 17 18 19%. There have been lots of uh, uh, bilateral advanced pricing agreements, competent authority proceedings under which these have been accepted. But this is higher than the global norm. It also means that when you render services, you are getting full cost plus that markup whether it is 17, 18, 19% and that money gets trapped in India, then you declare a dividend, then there is a dividend tax and whatever else happening on that. So That does become cumbersome, but it is far, far less than anything else one would see in the manufacturing sector.
1: Right. So to go back to that example that you gave just now, so in a global captive center, as they call them. So let's say there's Walmart or Target in the US, their software and as you said, tax, audit and so on arms are sitting here. So how does the book get built first? I mean, so the output of this company, how do they start measuring it? So I'm assuming salaries come from overseas. So let's say 100 is the salary bill, salary plus overheads and everything for this unit in India. So take us through the journey after that.
0: It's actually very simple. It's not complicated at all. Almost all captives are on total cost plus. There may be some differences, for example, that the cost may not include interest cost because there's borrowing which is local, etc. So... Every single cost that you have, whether it is rent, whether it is salary, whether it is power, whether it is water, whether it is travel, everything is borne by the global company parent, which is getting services in India. And the way it works is that in the beginning of the year, you agree with a budget with the Indian captive, which is a wholly owned subsidiary by and large. You come back and say, this is the margin we are going to give you month on month invoices are raised to take into account the entire cost and a payout happens.
1: Got it. So, where is the problem on tax? I mean, where, where, why do questions then get asked? So, the
0: question is, what is the markup which India should charge? So, and without making it too technical, let me just explain to you that in a situation like this, India is not an entrepreneur. It is a captive. It doesn't have to go out and market. It does not bear the risk of foreign exchange. It does not bear the risk of capacity utilization. So, let's say you've got a 10,000 person back office. And let's say in a particular month, there is only work for 8,000. India does not bear that risk. Let's assume you constructed a 10-story building and initially use only 6 and 4 was vacant. India would still get reimbursed. So the question is that if you are a captive and the entire cost is borne by your parent, what sort of a markup should be there? The global MNCs would like to believe that a markup in such a case should be de minimis 5%, 7%, 10%. India comes back and says, no, in fact, at the, India has asserted margins as high as 35 to 81%. Okay, And those got litigated. And now, as I said, some sanity has come about and we see averages of around 17 to 20%. But global MNCs, while to avoid litigation have accepted those 17 to 20%, there is a concern to say, is that a right markup? Which a person who's taking zero risk, there is no inventory risk, there is no nothing. You incur, the more expenditure you incur, the more wasteful you are, the more profit you will make because you are going to be reimbursed everything. So what should be the markup? That's the issue.
1: So this is of course captives, but are you seeing transfer pricing issues again as companies relocate or want to set up base in India?
0: Going transfer pricing is that whether when two associated enterprises deal with each other, are they dealing at an arm's length or not? And that is, of course, a very simple way of putting things. Globally, whether arm's length is at all possible is a matter of challenge, and I won't go into uh, those part of technicalities. But the question here is that India, generally, the transfer pricing has been very, very aggressive. At one stage, govind it would be surprising to know that seventy percent of global transfer pricing litigation we had. 2% of the global trade and 70% of transfer pricing litigation because whether you paid royalties, whether you paid technical charges, whether you paid cost sharing for common infrastructure, common technology, whatever else, everything was a matter of challenge and it continues to be so. What has happened is thanks to the captives accepting 17, 18%, lots of advance pricing agreement happened. The quantum of litigation has gone out. But there still continues to be litigation and that. So again, what are the comparables to be used in comparing, coming to that comparable, what factors to ignore, what factors not to ignore becomes a big issue.
1: Right. So let's come to the risk part now. And I mean, the risk is borne by companies and in companies, it's borne by people who sit on the board and the leadership and so on. So walk us through what it takes today. So in all these cases that you spoke of, you spoke of manufacturing services, captives, non-captives, transfer pricing, In all of these cases, there are people who are bearing the risk and in a larger context, when you invest in India, this is something that you should think about if you've not invested already. And if you are invested in India, then you should be actively plugged into this space. So
0: I'll break up that answer. It will be a mouthful of an answer, but let me try and put it as briefly as I can. Two things happen. Tax risk is one of those risks which global MNCs, when they invest into India, look at. And therefore, if the normal IRR expectation is X after taking country risk and whatever else into account, tax risk will be an additional factor. So if, for example, a corporation says my IRR in India should be 15%, then it might go back and say I need 17% to make up for the tax risk and litigation that might happen.
1: But is that a real figure?
0: Yes and yes and no. So each company has its own sort of set of numbers that one is looking at. But does my tax risk result in a higher expectation? The answer is very much yes. So a private equity, for example, will come back and say, I am making investment. My normal expectation is a 15% IRR, but I'm looking at a tax litigation where things could be stuck up in appeals, et cetera. I might have to make on-account payments and whatever else. They will put it as a higher return therefore. And that is not theoretical. That is very practical. So evaluating India risk, one of the risks which you will take into account is transfer price or rather tax litigation risk, not just transfer pricing. So that's one part. Second is a much different issue and that may not necessarily relate to global corporates and transfer pricing, but which applies everywhere. So every board today has independent board members and independent board members, when they look at ESR and when they look at what are the risks that are being assumed by an enterprise, tax risk becomes a very, very important and a critical factor. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. For example, you would have seen in the recent past that the government has changed its view on how to tax the gaming industry. So the question is, am I supposed to go on a net basis or on a gross investment basis? The government came back to clarify the law that is on a gross basis and said that's what it always was. And therefore taxes for Mac years have been asserted. And I'm looking at numbers which at least in my career, I had never thought of. So I have known enterprises getting demands of as high as 60,000, 70,000 crores of rupees. Now, these organizations have to go bust if at all they have to make that payment. They can't. They would go bankrupt. And of course, these are being challenged in appeals, etc.
1: And the question is, just a quick question there. Can you go bust? Because assuming there's a, whatever, let's say even a 1,000 crore tax demand and all you have in your bank and assets and everything is only 500 crores. The balance 500 crores becomes a liability on the directors, right? Or can you just fold up and go?
0: No, it's a limited liability company. Why would okay. We are, uh,
1: okay, so the directors will not be chased down? A uh, Yes and no. Because uh, yeah, as I understand
0: it, directors get hauled in. So the answer is, again, to everything in life, yes and no. The law is very clear. A limited liability company is liable only to the extent of funding by the shares. And there is a provision in Income Tax Act that in the case of an unlisted company, If the directors have acted wrong, they've done something which can be sort of held personally, that they have not been appropriate in their conduct, they did something to avoid taxes, then the taxes can be recovered, which is a rare thing to happen. Because generally in matters like this, there'll be counsel, opinions, whatever else on a point of view that you have taken. So take for example, going back to this GST on gaming companies, it was a view which was never there. And in some cases where the tax office came back to say that that should be the view, that it should be on a gross basis, there were several judgments which held no, it was not so. And now the government has sort of changed the law and is applying the law, changed law retroactively and people have filed rate petitions are being heard. There is no way a director can be hauled up personally for any of those things. But a director would be concerned about the tax risk that is the company now a going concern at all? Is this amount required to be provided, not provided? That's what a director is concerned with, to come back and say, just imagine you are on the board of a company and the company has got assets of 1,000 crores and it receives a demand of 50,000 crores. It's very likely that if that demand was real, then the company will cease to be a going concern, will have to be wound up. Okay. So without getting into whether a director is liable, a director is concerned whether the accounts are right or not, an auditor is concerned about what to do about this liability because... Even though you may have a view that it is not right, you want to be very sure that it is not required to be provided. So that becomes a tax risk. So today, the way the values are coming up in terms of the numbers, or the liability which is being asserted by the revenue, which is so high that the board becomes takes has to take tax into account as a very major risk factor and satisfy itself that the accounts are true and fair. Even if tax is shown merely as a contingent liability and not as an actual liability.
1: You use gaming as an extreme example because you're saying the amounts are so large that there's no but you're also saying that on a continuing basis for a regular company, a board should be thinking about tax risk more actively than they were earlier. Oh, absolutely. Okay.
0: Again, going to the subject in itself, and there's still that I can do in the limits of time that we need to look at. But uh, let me give you an example. There has been this litigation on whether If you are a telecom company and you do revenue share under the new 1999 policy, telecom policy, whether that expenditure is capital in nature or revenue in nature, to us as puritanical accountants, it might appear to be a non-issue. The revenue share goes to the government, it's part of my normal operations and therefore is a revenue expenditure. The Supreme Court held, and I'm sure a review petition will be filed, but that's the law as it stands today, That if you came into existence as a result of the license and you paid apart from that continuing or getting into existence, a maintenance and operations and running of that license, the entire expenditure is capital in nature, which is not how most of us would have understood law. And therefore, that expenditure will not be allowed to in this particular case. There is a process of amortization and that has to be taken into account. If that means that you will not get amount as a revenue expenditure, then your tax outgo goes up. And that board needs to consider all over. So there are so many changes which are happening. There's another big issue about brand licensing. So on GST again, there is this whole issue that if there's a corporate brand and that brand is being used by all the companies, is there a deemed charge for the use of brand? And that royalty on which GST has not been collected, can it be collected? So we have so much of litigation going on today.
1: The brand is like a Tata mother brand or...
0: Tata, in, in fact, as is known in the public domain, charges yeah. every company. But not all groups do that. And can can the tax office deem that you are allowed to use something free? You should have charged and therefore the amount which you have foregone by way of a charge, on that, I'm going to charge you GST. So uh, we, we are looking at litigation almost out of thin air, if I may say so. And boards need to be very, very concerned about are they looking at the risk right? Are they taking steps to protect themselves from and the organization, from the risk? And if a demand has arisen,
1: are they really provisioning, not provisioning? One is that, are you able to think like the taxman does today? Like when you say the example that you gave, I mean, you're thinking that it's going to be revenue and the Supreme Court, in this case, it's a court, says it's capital expenditure, which obviously changes the way you account for it. Something else, you know, you think, you would not even think of anything and then suddenly a tax demand lands. And it's also because people, let's say, in a newer tax, like a goods and services tax, are trying to think on the taxman side, trying to be more and more innovative.
0: So the answer to your question as to whether advisors, organizations can think the way a tax department thinks, the answer is yes and no. There could be issues on which capital versus revenue you can foresee a litigation. Okay, But to take this again, going back to this GST case. Would you really be able to do it at all? Because it was never there. Suddenly out of the thin air, okay, the tax office comes back with an interpretation. Because remember one thing, our tax laws, the way they have been designed is to say that no central body can tell a tax officer to decide a particular matter in a particular manner. So, in order to prevent any corruption, whatever else, a freedom has been given to the tax office. Unfortunately, what that freedom also means is that each tax officer interprets the same law or a tax treaty in a different manner. And there is nobody who can question him, so to say, for it.
1: But in the case of gaming, it seems to me that there was anticipation something like this could come. Maybe not as big as you've you've seen, but...
0: If it was there, then the values had to be what they are in the case of gaming. So what happens is, I was just exactly the point I was making. There's a tax officer in one part of the country, say Kerala, taking a particular point of view. You are sitting in Bombay. Your assessments have gone through after examination, six years, seven years. And that Kerala thing goes into ICOD. You may not even be aware that somebody sitting in some part of India has taken that view. Okay. Now the tax office is going and saying, but this is the right view. And not only today, it was always the right view. So you can't anticipate human
1: ingenuity. Right. Last question, which of course I would ask you every time I would interview. If there's one thing that you would want to change, which is in the near term, practical, which would make life a little easier from your point of view, what would it be?
0: Central Board of Direct Taxes CBEC, needs to really give a direction and resolve disputes as they arise. Everything did not be litigated all the way up to Supreme Court. Today, once a dispute starts, it means that until a Supreme Court intervenes, which could be 10, 15 years, you won't get a solution and you have a democracy sword on your head. India needs to come out of it, to go back and say that people will take a view and will resolve issues sooner they arise rather than allow them to go.
1: That's a good point to end on. Thank you so much for joining me, Dinesh. Thank you. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you Including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback@thecore.in. At Thank you for listening.